morning. I'm going to ask you to take your Bible and turn to Psalm 9, though our sermon this morning is titled, Your Kingdom Come, Worship in Revelation. But we're going to start in Psalms 9 and 10. Thankful to Pastor John for helping organize that Bible feeding opportunity for us this fall. If you already have a good daily Bible feeding system that you're, you're using, great. Stick with it. Men, though, if possible, add that chapter a day for these 90 days so that when we gather for those three men's meetings, we have been reading the same thing. Um, so we'll look forward to those times to gather around God's Word And if you don't have a consistent daily Bible feeding routine already, then use this to help you jump in. Make sure you pick up those resources from the table in the lobby. This morning we finish our study of worship um, by looking at the worship in Revelation. And worship in Revelation is a little hard to wrap your mind around. It is sometimes heavy, even uncomfortable, but it is also deeply meaningful and deeply comforting. You know, I think if we were honest, we would probably, most of us, be willing to say that one of the things we hope for with worship is that it will feel good. Um, And in some senses, it, it does. Worship in Revelation doesn't always feel good. It is sometimes or even often uncomfortable. And that reminds us that true worship isn't just about the truths we like. It is our response to a full understanding of God's character and God's work in the world, including the hard things, including the end of this world. So worship in Revelation is definitely unique. And we're going to begin with Psalm, excerpts from Psalm 9 and 10. I would encourage you to read all of both of these psalms later um, because these psalms like these really help me grasp worship in Revelation. Psalm 9 15, the nations have sunk in the pit that they have made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Verse 17, the wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. And in Revelation, God does that. And all of creation and all of heaven and earth worship him because he does. Psalm 10, verse 1. Why, O Lord... Do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? 
Well, in Revelation, God does not stand far away any longer. Look down to verse 11. He, the wicked, says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account, but you do see. For you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. Oh, Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. And again, in Revelation, God does that, and the result is worship. So will you take your Bible and turn to Revelation 19 now? We are going to jump all over the book of Revelation this morning, I think probably... I don't know, some 30% of this sermon or something is just Scripture reading. We're going to read almost all the major worship passages in Revelation as we go along. There are just two main points this morning. The first is Revelation describes the reasons for future worship. I understand that Christians disagree on how much of Revelation is future, but the bottom line is by the time you get to the end, we know it's future. So we'll just all agree on that. Revelation describes future worship. Why will God's people and all creation worship in the future? Simple answer, because God will accomplish final salvation. When we use the word salvation, we're usually referring to our own personal forgiveness of sin. But there is more to come. God will make us fully new, both body and soul. He will fully deal with all sin and evil, including Satan and demons and people, He will fully display his rule and his justice on earth, and then he will make all things new and dwell with his people forever. So that that is final salvation, and that final salvation is the focus of worship in Revelation. Revelation 12 verse 10 says, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. The salvation has come. So look in Revelation 19 verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more, they cry out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. That great prostitute who probably represents something like the world's government or the world's system organized against God has been judged and heaven worships. Revelation 19, verse 6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude 
like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Why hallelujah? Because He reigns. Every Sunday, we worship God because He reigns. I think it's in, a, it's in a song or a scripture reading or a prayer somewhere every single Sunday. And yet, we've only seen part of His reign. Someday, it will be fully carried out on earth. Go with me back to Revelation 11. I want to show you several passages that describe the coming of God in his reign and in his justice and the worship that, res- that results. Revelation 11, verses 15 through 17. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The full reign of King Jesus will come to earth. And we will worship. Go ahead a couple pages to Revelation 15. We sang a Revelation song this morning from these verses. Revelation 15, verses 3 and 4. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. All nations will worship because his righteous acts will be fully and finally revealed. Now, look at this. Verse 3, they sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. What is the song of Moses? Could be Exodus 15 and that song when they celebrate God's judgment on the Egyptians. But I think it's Deuteronomy 32, which specifically refers to a song of Moses. It's a long song that Moses wrote. And I'm going to read you just the last words of the song of Moses. Rejoice with him, referring to the Lord God. Rejoice with the Lord God, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. That's the end of Moses' song. Moses worshiped God for his justice and even his vengeance. And that is very similar to the worship in Revelation. So, why is it that God must come with power and justice like this? 
in a sense, though it's not written in this form, Revelation is like a case in court. It's full of reasons, like from the prosecuting attorney, why it is right for God to come in power and justice. And I want to show you three of the biggest reasons in Revelation. Will you turn back to Revelation 11? Three of the reasons why the earth and its people deserve what God gives. And so here's the first. God comes as judge and king because people destroy his earth. So we read from Revelation 11 just a minute ago that we stopped at verse 17. So now read verse 18. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. And the time came for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Isn't that interesting? God created this earth for his purposes. But we have tried to take it back for ourselves, turning to rebellion, and in the process we have brought destruction to God's creation. Through sin, we cause destruction to ourselves, to others, and then to the creation itself. For the next two Sundays, we are preparing to put a special emphasis on God as creator. Next Sunday morning in this service, Dr. Matsko will preach on the biblical doctrine of creation. David Peterson writes, In Revelation, the doctrine of creation is given as the primary reason for worshiping God. God made it all, and so we owe it all to him. We are accountable to him for what we have done with his creation. Look over in Revelation 14. Revelation 14. Verses 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. You probably know Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God created all things for his will and his purposes, yet we have torn it apart by our sin, so the Creator will come and he will destroy the destroyers of the earth, and he will be worthy of worship when he does. A second reason, God comes as judge and king to avenge the violence against his people. We saw that already in Revelation 19, where we read that a great multitude in heaven worships because he has avenged the blood of his servants. It's also in Revelation 16, if you want to go ahead just maybe a page. Revelation 16 And verse 5, And I heard an angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, 
who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, because this curse turns the water into blood. The end of verse 6, it is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. God will come to avenge all violence against his people. And then the third reason, God comes as judge and king to punish false worship. Have you heard of the worship wars? That's been a thing for about the last 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, I don't know. The phrase probably the last 20 or 30 years to describe churches who disagree over what kind of music they ought to use and split over worship styles. That's not the real worship war. The real worship war is the war for who people are going to worship. It's not the war over particular instruments and stuff. Revelation portrays a battle for worshipers. Satan is furious, knowing that his time is short, and he uses every possible tactic to lure worshipers away from God. He uses economics and the addiction of wealth. He uses political power and social pressure. He uses immorality and sexual temptation. He even uses a counterfeit Savior who attracts great worship, even though he's a beast. And then Revelation also describes these false worshipers how they rage against God and they curse God, how they refuse to repent of their sin, and especially how they worship the beast and the image of the beast. They say, who is like the beast? There's even a worship leader in Revelation, a satanic worship leader, a second beast who leads people to worship the first. There's also a mark to publicly identify yourself with the beast. Those things are all a blasphemous empty counterfeit of our Lord Jesus Christ. Satan gives to people a beast while God gives to us a lamb. Yet many people choose to worship the beast and have the money and the security and the sexual freedom and the acceptance that comes with worshiping the beast instead of having Christ. But God will come to judge and destroy all false worship and worshipers. First, earthly plagues and curses will be poured out on the false worshipers, but then they will receive eternal torment. I think maybe the most sobering section in all of Revelation is in Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14, verses 9 through 11. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, 
these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Do you see why I say that to talk about Christian disagreements about music and worship is to totally miss what the real worship war is? Because this is the end of those who worship something other than Christ. God will come to judge false worshipers, and he will be worthy of worship when he does. We've read a lot of passages already, and we've had a lot of truths coming at us, I know. But the overall point here is that Revelation tells us the reasons for future worship. Revelation is not primarily describing heaven's current worship right now, and Revelation is not primarily describing eternal worship. It's describing particular worship at particular times in the future when God comes to bring final salvation. And God will be worshiped because he brings his rule and his justice to earth. This is all part of God's work to make all things new. And so one of the things that's interesting in Revelation is that it's not only the redeemed who worship him for these things. It is all of creation. It is all of the nations. It is all of the kings of the earth. Because what he does is right. Now, before we move on from this point, we should not fail to mention that there is a great Savior and there are countless redeemed people. No one has to face that judgment of God if they will simply turn to Christ. And so will you turn to Revelation chapter 5? Revelation chapter 5 rewinds back before the final judgments on earth began. It rewinds back to a scene in heaven just before those judgments began. And here in the Apostle John's vision, he sees that there is a scroll in the hand of God which contains the plans for the rule and reign of God to come to earth. But John weeps loudly. Verse 4, And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll, or to look into it. It's, it's sealed, as they would have done in that time, sealed shut. And if no one can open the scroll, then is God going to come to earth and make everything right? But, verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp, musical instruments in heaven, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. That's a fascinating little note about worship, isn't it? The prayers of the saints are like incense before the throne of God in heaven. Verse 9, And they sang a new song, saying, Singing, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals because 
you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the sea and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped if you're not a false worshiper It is by the grace of God and the death of the Lamb of God for you. Jesus took our judgment in our place to ransom us from the judgment of our idolatry and to restore us to true worship. When you read the middle of Revelation 14 and you read God's judgment on false worshipers, that is what God did to Jesus on the cross for you. Worthy is the Lamb. So Revelation chapter 1 says this about Jesus. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus is a great Savior for guilty, false worshipers like us. But he is also going to come and complete our salvation. He is worthy to break the seals and open that scroll and then to come as king and judge. And so, as chapter 5 ends and chapter 6 begins, Jesus begins to open the scroll and the judgments begin. So what we've learned here in our first point is that Revelation uncovers the reasons why God will be worshiped. And in almost every worship passage in Revelation, God is worshiped because he has brought his rule and his justice to earth. Now, let's move on to our second theme. Revelation provides the motivation for present worship. It might seem that what we've talked about this morning has little connection to your life today, but Revelation says that's not true. If you could turn with me, I don't know where we are now. Oh, we're in five. Go to 14 again. Revelation 14. We read that judgment of God on false worshipers in Revelation 14, verses 9 through 11. Now look at verse 12. Revelation 14, 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. How about if we read Revelation 14, 12 again? Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. What is the purpose of the book of Revelation? It is to help you endure as a faithful worshiper today. 
You are either a true worshiper of God through Jesus, or you are a worshiper of false idols. Throughout Revelation, those two groups stand in stark contrast, and then those two trajectories continue for eternity. And so it is worth it to reject idolatry and to worship the true God. We see a glimpse of that here in verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. It is worth it to follow the Lord. And yet our constant temptation is to compromise and worship the things of this world because they give us what we want. It is ultimately self-worship. That was your temptation this week. And it was mine too. And that's why at the beginning of Revelation, John describes himself as our brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. John says, I'm with you in this patient endurance thing. So let's finish up this morning by considering four perspectives and encouragements about faithful worship from Revelation. Number one, endure in faithful worship despite tremendous pressure. We don't have time to look at them, but the letters to the churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 show that it was very hard to be faithful to Jesus then, just as it is now. And Revelation mentions all the main categories of pressure, sexual pressures to immorality, political pressures to fit in as a good citizen, even if it means compromising your faith, economic pressures like not being able to buy and sell if you don't go along with the world, and violent pressures, including the threat of death. In Revelation 12, Satan is furious, and he makes war with those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. In Revelation 13, the beast is allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, it says. Look at Revelation 13, Verse 9, here are ominous words. Revelation thirteen nine. if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Look back at Revelation 12, verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. They died to be faithful worshipers rather than compromise with the world. So, if it seems to be hard to be a loyal worshiper of Jesus Christ, it is. Which of these things have gone away in the last 2,000 years? Sexual pressures? Political pressures? Economic pressures? We've got them all, right? And for many of our brothers and sisters around the world, there are still literally violent pressures upon them. All of those pressures are actually worship pressures. They pressure you away from faithful worship of Jesus Christ. And so Revelation... The point 
is to call us to endure in faithful worship, to help us endure in faithful worship despite tremendous pressure. Number two, endure in faithful worship because God will judge all false worshipers. We've already seen that. Revelation 13. So here's what's interesting. Okay, the middle of Revelation 13 shows the tremendous cost for Christians who remain faithful. We just read that in Revelation 13, verse 10, for example. Satan is going to kill everybody he can kill for following Jesus. You might die for Christ, but you have to put the middle of Revelation 13 together with the middle of Revelation 14, which shows the even greater cost of being unfaithful to God. He will eternally judge all false worshipers. So it's really this simple. True worship is costly. You might lose your life. False worship is more costly. You'll lose your life and your soul forever. Endure in faithful worship because God will judge all false worshipers. Number three, endure in faithful worship because God tenderly cares for his worshipers. The greatest motivation to be faithful to God does not come from the horrible penalties for idolatry and false worship. It comes from the goodness of God, the grace of God, the kindness of God to his people through Christ. So uh, let's go back to Revelation 7. We, we're, we could look at this in several different places in Revelation. It's, it's from beginning to end. At the beginning of Revelation, chapter 1, John falls down before Christ as though dead. And the first thing Jesus says to him is, fear not. And so that begins this theme of God's care for his worshipers that continues all the way to Revelation 21 and 22 and the, the beautiful promises of God's care for his people when he makes all things new. We're going to read just this excerpt from Revelation 7, verses 15 through 17. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The world has so much to promise you, you know, but whatever comfort or safety you might gain by compromising with the world, whatever wealth or possessions you might enjoy by participating in the world's methods, whatever passing pleasures sin might be able to offer you, those things are not only eternally damning, but they are nothing in comparison with the eternal grace of God, the eternal goodness of God. Endure in faithful worship because God tenderly cares for his worshipers and he will do that forever. And then finally, let's turn to Revelation 22. Endure in faithful worship, for the joy of worship is only just beginning. If you think you know what worship is, if we think we know, we might be wise to consider ourselves as like three-year-olds who think they know how the world works. If we think we know what there is to worship God about, maybe the same illustration. 
Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, of the, river the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. Instead of the mark of the beast, they have the name of Christ. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So verse 3, his servants will worship him. And remember that serving God and worshiping God, those are just interchangeable all throughout Scripture. It's like two different ways of saying the same thing. So I, I think back to, um, as I read that, his servants will worship him. I think back to Revelation 19, which describes the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's the, the reunion of Jesus with his people forever. We read it earlier. Um, we'll be there. And at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the worship will be roaring, it says. It will be thunderous, as it's described in Revelation 19. The Gettys put out a song this year from that passage, the beginning of Revelation 19, and I think they, they textually did a great job of highlighting that the text says it will be roaring and thunderous worship. Now, some people understand that marriage supper as just a kind of a picture of the joy of eternity with God. I, I tend to think there's a literal marriage supper of the Lamb. Either way, the celebration won't ever end. In the weddings I saw when I was growing up, wedding receptions were not especially long. Um, there were refreshments, and there were maybe some speeches, and the bride and groom would, you know, kind of greet everybody individually, and then they would leave. Um, and some of you know that Crystal and I took that to an embarrassing extreme at our wedding. If you haven't heard that wedding, I mean, that story, you can ask us, and we will yet again humble ourselves and tell you what we did. Um, but I did a church internship one summer in Michigan where the traditions were different. And I remember being so shocked when I went to this wedding there. After the wedding, they sat down for a full meal with everybody. And it went on for hours and hours and hours. And it's like five hours after the wedding, and the bride and groom are still there. And I'm thinking to myself, you two are crazy. You are crazy. Now, I've matured a little bit since then, and I understand the value of something like that. And if I, we could redo our wedding reception, we would do it differently. But back then, it shocked me that this wedding celebration was never going to end. Well, you can be certain that the marriage supper of the Lamb is a celebration that's never going to end. The worship never ends. But it's not just that it doesn't end. It actually just keeps getting better. And this is so important to understand because I think some people picture heaven like this forever. This, what we're doing this morning. And I, can I just tell you, it's so much better. Tom Nettles says it this way. They increase 
in capacity throughout eternity. His redeemed image bearers will yet praise him, for he has made them capable of such perceptions of true glory and of ever-expanding manners of expression within which this praise will be couched. In other words, he's saying our worship's going to get better and better forever, and he's giving us two reasons why. First, because we will keep learning about the glories of God more and more. We will no longer be hindered by the weakness that makes it hard for us to grasp his glory here. We'll see clearly, and yet, his glory is endless. So it's not like when you see clearly, you immediately get it and know it all. You're actually going to keep learning it forever. And that means that our reasons for worship will just keep growing. And at the same time, our capacity for worship will keep growing. We'll keep learning how to worship. That's what he calls ever-expanding manners of expression. Our reasons to worship will keep growing, and our ability to worship will keep growing, and no sin or suffering will ever hinder it. Harold Best says it this way, The church, singing of the grace of God, having triumphed through Jesus Christ, continues the song begun on earth, but then it will be unimaginably transformed by the very power that takes full responsibility for the new creation. And he goes on, grace in its final uninhibited triumph, faith having turned from trust to sight, and worship having been totally purified. These together will generate an endless song of which no one presently can give full account. We're like preschoolers talking astrophysics when we talk about the worship of heaven. Unimaginably better, unimaginably transformed, and it will get better and better forever. Endure in faithful worship, for the joy of worship is just getting started. All right, we've covered a lot this morning. We've read almost every major worship passage in Revelation. We've learned about the reasons for future worship and the motivations for present worship. Most of all, I hope you've learned that Revelation is a call for the endurance of the saints. All the things we've talked about this morning are here in this book, to stir our hearts to be faithful worshipers of Christ today. Love Christ and reject all that is not honoring to Christ, no matter the cost. The latest issue of World Magazine has an article about the Dalits. You're, I'm sure, familiar with that term, which describes the lowest levels of India's caste system. According to the article, only about 2% of India's population is Christian. And the only way for a Dalit to become more despised than they already are is by becoming a Christian. There are a number of government benefits that are actually available to the Dalits if you're a Buddhist, a Hindu, or a Sikh, not if you're a Christian. There's also much physical violence against Christians in some parts of India including at least 100 Christians who've been killed in just one state this summer. 
This starts to sound a little bit like Revelation, doesn't it? Political pressures, violent pressures. There are also other social and economic pressures. The article tells the story of one upper-class Indian Hindu who finds out that Christians are witnessing to one of their servants and starts using their money to bribe their servant enough to make sure they won't convert to Christianity. And even Dalits persecute Dalits when they convert to Christianity. In one village, the converts to Christianity were cut off from their own farmland and from the wells of clean water. So as the article ends, the the author describes her conversation with this group of kids. These kids attend a little little school run by Indian Christians. Uh, These are all Dalit children, and they um, are almost all from non-Christian homes, Um, some of them single-parent homes. One of these is an orphan. Um, And they they run the school in the hopes that these kids might have a future more than just the most menial jobs as servants at the very bottom of, of society. And so the author of the article talking to these children asked them what they want to be when they grow up. And they said, Pilot. Soldier, doctor, doctor, pilot. And she asked, does anyone have another answer besides doctor or pilot? And one boy said, when I grow up, I want to serve God. Remember Revelation 22? His servants will worship him. Revelation 7.15, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. Then the author asked these students if they knew any songs, and they loudly and joyfully sang a worship song. And when it was done, they told her that the lyrics to that song are a prayer. Help us, holy God, to serve you. Sung by children who may pay a tremendous price if they actually serve the holy God. And so I can't think of a better conclusion to our six-month study of worship than that simple prayer, and even for these children to tell us that. Help us, holy God, to serve you, to worship you. We'll probably never meet these children whose lives are much harder than ours. Following Christ will cost them so much more than it will probably cost us. And yet their voices ring out across the sea and they call us to faithful worship here today because God didn't call you to worship him as a Dalit in India. He called you to worship him faithfully right here. So now, brothers and sisters, let us endure. Let us serve God despite political pressures, societal pressures, economic pressures, moral pressures? Can I ask you to pause and consider which of those pressures is most pressing upon you and makes it most likely that you will be unfaithful to Jesus today? Let us in full dependence upon God endure as faithful worshipers until that day when unhindered worship begins and then just gets better forever and ever. So our closing prayer is simply this. Help us, holy God, to worship you and you 
alone. I'm going to give you a minute to pray that yourself. Uh, Gabriel's going to play for us. You can pray for just a minute, and then I will give us a final charge and benediction. Help us, holy God, to worship you.